Welcome to episode 51 of So Important, the interview podcast. Episode 50, featuring the roundtable on the great drummer Charlie Watts, was the fastest to 100 downloads ever. So thank you. But that show is in the books. And now we turn to the future, and I'm very excited about our guest today. We are with Randy Schmidt, who is the author of Little Girl Blue, The Life of Karen Carpenter, which is the definitive 2010 biography of the great singer and drummer, and Karen is our topic today. Why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near? Just like me, they long to be close to you. Why do stars fall down from the sky Every time you walk by Just like me, they long to be close to you Along with her brother Richard, Karen Carpenter was one half of the Carpenters, an immensely popular pop act in the 1970s that sold over 100 million records and charted one top 20 hit after another. Now, I wasn't personally a great Carpenters fan, being a young man listening to ACDC, The Rolling Stones, Aerosmith, and other bands of that ilk. But I was always aware of that singer with a distinctive, warm, and engaging voice. And of course, like everyone else, I was so saddened to hear of her death in 1983 from heart failure associated with anorexia nervosa. But a few weeks ago, I caught an amazing video of Karen drumming, which I have shared in the show notes, and it led me not only to focus a little more on this really unique vocalist, but also to ask, just what is the story here? How did someone with such enormous talent who seemed to have the world in her hands come to such a tragic end? And why? Why wasn't it prevented? And these questions led me right to today's guest, the great author, Randy Schmidt. Randy is the writer or editor of numerous books exploring the life and music of such icons as Judy Garland, Dolly Parton, and others. But it's Randy's work on Karen Carpenter that took the world by storm a while back and still resonates with readers today. So let's explore the Karen Carpenter story with one of the great authorities on the topic. And Randy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. What a great introduction. I appreciate it. You know, Randy, I'm really looking forward to learning more today about Karen Carpenter. But I am also really fascinated by your story. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be focused on Karen's story and how that led to such a groundbreaking book? It all started in 1989 when I watched the television movie about Karen's life. I had been born right in the heyday of the Carpenters, so I, I missed most of the music releases and everything first firsthand. And so it was that TV movie on CBS in 89 that introduced me all at once to Karen's music and her story. And I had an immediate reaction both to the music and, of course, the voice, but also to her story. I, I was only a 13-year-old kid at the time, but I had such empathy for her. And it was just a, a, a tragic story, but I, I felt like there was just more to it than than what had been portrayed there. So that's what kind of kicked off this research, not with the idea of doing a book, of course, but just to learn more from my own curiosity. When did you start the research and start to learn 
And how long was it before the book came out? Well, the research started almost immediately. I found myself in my um, hometown library, I think a day or two after the movie aired. It would be another 20 years before this book really took shape and, and was published. Some of the first interviews that I did for the book were done around 2001. And because I'm an elementary music teacher by day and can't devote all of my time to writing, it was something that was kind of on again, off again for a few years. But the the interest was always there. The the research, the the digging for any mention of them in um, old magazines and newspapers was just um, at the forefront of my mind. I, I wanted to collect everything I could because I had missed it firsthand. Now, you said you're an elementary school teacher, so you came at it from not just a, a author's perspective, but a musician or a musical perspective. You were really focused on the music, it sounds like, at first. Yeah, from the time I was probably um, a fourth or fifth grader in elementary school, I was interested in vocal music and singing. So I, I did have that that connection or, or that interest in, in singing already. About the time that I heard the Carpenter's music and really started to um, get into it, I was in middle school and high school choir, and I was into the choral sound of music. So, of course, the Carpenter's stacked, multi-layered harmonies were very appealing to me. I loved what they were doing in a choral sense. So you were really listening to what the music was producing at the same time you saw this movie. You felt the movie did not accurately portray her life. It was um, rather whitewashed and um, sort of a diluted version of the story. But really, it's a, it's a pretty good overview. And I still send people to that movie if they just want to get a good you know 90-minute look at who the Carpenters were and who Karen was. But there were enough holes in the story. And then about four or five years after that came a authorized book with the cooperation of the Carpenter family. But the same thing, I read that and I just felt like there was something missing. I felt like I needed to continue digging. It was kind of a mission to find out, you know, to connect these dots or to sometimes find the dots that I knew were were missing. Um, again, not with the idea of doing a book, but just from my own curiosity. It finally came to a point where People were saying, how do you know this story? Or how do you know that? Who told you that? And I realized that I had amassed, you know, interviews, like these interview tapes I was doing, and I wasn't even doing them for, for anything other than my own curiosity and my own research. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. So I finally decided to write the book that I was wanting to read. <laughs> how did they start out and how did they end up on TV selling hundreds of millions of records? It really goes back to their their childhood in New Haven, Connecticut. Richard was musical from birth and Karen came along and was kind of the tag along kid sister in a lot of ways. She was interested in whatever Richard was interested in. And so together they listened to a lot of recordings from their father's extensive music collection. He had a, a you know, hundreds of old 78s. They would listen to those together, and that proved to be their musical influences. You know, um, Les Paul and Mary Ford were some of the pioneers in sure. that overdubbed um, harmony sound that the Carpenters took and took it to new places with when technology was there to, to allow that to happen. I'm a big fan of that early Les Paul and Mary Ford music, and I, I didn't know that, that that was one of their influences. Yeah, absolutely. That was some of the earliest records they were listening to. And other vocalists that, you know, you can 
hear a little bit of it in Karen at times, people like Patty Page, the, the rich alto tone. And so they, they had a lot of influences like that, but then quirky things too, like the old Spike Jones records. So they were listening to these records together. Richard was um, becoming quite adept at um, playing the piano. Karen would try things like the flute or the accordion or whatever was kind of popular with kids at that time. And she never really took it all that seriously. She was um, very much a tomboy and liked to play baseball with the the neighborhood boys out, you know, in Sandlot games and that kind of thing. It really didn't click for her until after the family had relocated to Southern California. They moved to Downey in 1963 and Richard was really considered kind of a a child or teenage prodigy at that point and was playing quite well, had studied with a a professor at Yale before they made the move. Uh, Again, Karen hadn't found anything musical that that really uh, hit the spot for her. So, Did she have the opportunity to sing? She didn't really start singing until she got into choir. This is, you know, me as a, as a music teacher, a public school music teacher, you can't speak highly enough of school music programs and the influences that those have, I think, on, on young people and on many people that go on to become, you know, famous musicians. That's where they got their start a lot of times. And that was the case for both Karen and Richard. They were involved in their high school band program and Karen also sang in the school choir. So Richard was being groomed, right, by the family. He was the one that was going to be the star. Exactly. Aaron was just kind of there along for the ride. But then all of a sudden, she started singing, and people started to rethink the, the equation a little bit, is mm-hmm. my understanding of what you're saying. She was singing in choir and still singing in that upper head voice that didn't really have anything distinctive about it, you know, just blend with, with the choral sound or whatever. She started singing and playing the drums kind of around the same time. Um, she got into band. The, the story goes, she got into band to get out of gym. She could get, um, you know, a PE credit for marching band. She was given a, a glockenspiel and marched alongside the drums and quickly took a liking to the drums and wanted to, to do that. She got a little bit of pushback, even from their, their band director, who said, girls don't play drums. And she immediately showed him that she was as good as just about everybody else in the drum line then decided that she wanted to study. She studied jazz drumming with a guy named Bill Douglas at um, Drum City in Hollywood. And she really took it seriously from the very beginning. I mean, she really knows what she's doing. And I mentioned a video at the beginning. It's not just drums. She's a full, full-blown percussionist. Yeah, she, she wanted to, to study the art of drumming. And she, she had, from what I understand, really good time and um, a sense for the fills and things that all came very natural to her working with a a buddy of hers from high school. There was a guy named Frankie Chavez that was the star drummer at Downey high school. But yeah, it was around the same time that she was getting interested in drumming that Richard was encouraging her to sing on some, some pop songs that he had written. So there was an interest there, but she didn't think that she was good. And even him at that time, he, he didn't, he didn't hear what was, going to become Karen Carpenter. One day, he put something in a particular key that had her starting out quite a bit lower in her chest voice. And it's just like she opened her mouth and this rich, husky alto came out. He was shocked and she was kind of like, what? What'd I do? (laughs) So it wasn't too long after that, though, that I think she realized that she could do something. She she understood her voice, even, um, even pretty early on, that she could 
do a lot of things with it. Just she had a lot of control from a very young age, but the voice was still fairly raw. You know, you hear those early recordings of her now and let's listen back. And okay, if somebody tells you yeah, that you go, yeah, that is Karen Carpenter, I can tell. But it still had to be kind of honed and crafted into the the beautiful instrument that it became. So about how old was she when they really started to feature her as the vocalist? And how did that sit with the family who had these other plans all together? Yeah, she was 15 or 16 when the um, voice started to emerge. A studio bassist by the name of Joe Osborne, um, who played with the Wrecking Crew musicians that have got a lot of attention, you know, of course, in the last few years, he heard her sing one night and was immediately taken with her voice and the way that it would record because her voice was pleasant, I think, you know, acoustically in the room or whatever. But then to put it through a microphone and to hear that magic happen when her voice was was actually tracked and recorded, took it to a different level and different place. And he offered her a solo recording contract at the age of 16 for a little garage record label that he had called Magic Lamp Records. Agnes Carpenter, who was uh, Richard and Karen's mother, was really taken aback by this because Richard had always, as you mentioned before, been groomed to be the superstar. They thought he was going to be the next generation Liberace or something like that, playing the piano. And then Karen comes along and they don't see that, you know, that she's going to be anything like, like he is necessarily, but then she's getting the attention. And um, so that was a little, a little difficult for, for mom Mom had to make sure that Richard got involved in that too, you know, playing the keyboard instruments with them needed to be Richard's song. So from the beginning, they were really kind of set up as a team or as a pair. It's like, you don't get Karen without Richard. So how did that turn into what we know as the Carpenters? Mm -hmm. They went from this jazz trio called the Richard Carpenter trio. You know, it was with a, a buddy of theirs that they knew from high school playing bass that um, allowed Karen to sing a little bit. They would do different gigs at, you know, a, a local steakhouse or at, at some party or something. And that's really how it began. But then they, they put together a vocal group, a six-piece vocal, vocal group that they called Spectrum. And that was really the beginning of the Carpenter's sound. But they had, you know, other people doing the voices. It didn't really take off. Record labels weren't interested. You know, people didn't dance to them whenever they would perform in clubs and things like that. And so they kind of dispersed and went their, went their different ways. That, though, then turned into what we now know as the Carpenters because Richard and Karen realized that these arrangements were Richard's. They could sing and overdub. They had been kind of taught the technique in Joe Osborne's garage studio, and they were allowed to kind of experiment with that sound and what they could build with just their two voices singing all the parts. They shopped their their demo around to pretty much every place in town that they had gone before with the, the vocal group that they had. And nobody was interested again, except finally the tape that they had, um, the demo tape, got to Herb Alpert at AM Records. And it was Herb that heard something in their sound that nobody else had really picked up on. He realized that she had a timeless voice, even at 19 years old at the time and signed them to a record contract with a Record 69. And it worked, and uh, they became a, a literally an international sensation, and soon they were on television. They were on television. They were, you know, winning Grammys. It was really a whirlwind. They say, it, you know, it took them years to get to where they were, but then when it happened, 
it happened overnight. Their first big recognition, of course, was with the song Close to You. And it was quickly followed up by We've Only Just Begun, For All We Know, uh, Rainy Days and Mondays, Superstar. I mean, there were 16 consecutive top 20 hits between 1970 and 76. And there aren't many groups that can say that. Did they tour? They did. They actually toured. That's one of the things that Richard looks back at now and wishes they hadn't toured to the extent that they did. In the years like 71 through 74, they toured and did concerts, sometimes up to 250 nights a year. They, they were told also that they wouldn't make any money for touring until they had played their 150th show. So there wasn't necessarily money in it. I mean, it was probably good publicity for them. They were performing at a lot of college campuses and places like that. But I think it put a strain. That was part of the, the yes. thing that was, was definitely taxing on, on both their health. So they had spent five, six years touring 250 nights a year. They were in demand for television contracts, uh, recording contracts. It sounds like there's just an enormous amount of pressure on them to just push forward and push forward. Exactly. You know, around 1974, Karen started to show signs of what would later be known to her family and to all of those around her as anorexia nervosa. She began to lose weight quite rapidly and really no explanation for it. They couldn't figure out why she was just continuing to diet. She got that somewhat under control enough to at least get the family and management and everything off her back around 1975, 76. She had had sort of a collapse that had happened there where she just had to kind of bow out of all of their um, touring and recording schedules for several months there and, and take care of her health. But they come back in 1976 with new management and new contracts. Jerry Weintraub was their manager and at that point was able to get them a deal, a multiple television special deal for ABC. And so they did a number of TV specials for ABC. And by that point, I think they were already kind of established as you know, almost like a legacy group. People were starting to see that, you know, the Carpenters are probably going to be around a long time. And I think they finally realized that, hey, if we're going to be around for a long time, we need to dial things back. We need to tour less. We can do television. We can do these different things and, and hopefully last. When you talk about the family and the management putting pressure on her, was it giving her what she needed? Karen was struggling with the fact that the family had always seen Richard as the musical genius, the superstar, the one that was going to be famous. And so even when she became um, a drummer, it was seen as important because what it could offer to Richard at the time, she could drum in Richard's trio. When she began to sing, okay, now she can record demos for Richard's songs. She was never really valued within the family aside from what she could offer to Richard and what he was supposed to become. So I think there was some guilt over that as, as her star began to outshine his very quickly. And, you know, the public began to connect with her and she was the star and the face and the voice of the Carpenters. I think there was a little bit of jealousy maybe going on from Richard because she was getting all the attention. She felt bad because, like I said, like mom said, he was the one that's supposed to be the star. What was her relationship like with Richard? Well, she absolutely adored him, first of all. He he hung the moon in her eyes, and she worshipped him very much like her mother had done. There are several interviews that have surfaced just in the last few years that I thought it was interesting because she really discredits herself. You know, all I do is sing, 
and he does this, he does this, he produces, he writes, he, you know, is there for the, um, the mix down and all this stuff, which of course is super important, but she had a one in a million voice. And that's not to discredit Richard for his contributions because, you know, I think he is a musical genius in a lot of ways and he knew how to surround her voice in such a beautiful way and to present it with the importance that it deserved. But at the same time, you know, she, she was one in a million. Did he try to help her? Was he very upfront and active and trying to help his, his sister? The family just wanted to fix it. I think that it was seen as we, we need to take care of this so we can keep making records, so we can keep doing what we're supposed to do. I don't think it was ever really on the, anybody's hearts or minds to think that it could take her from them until it was too late. They just kept kind of putting band-aids on it, everybody, including Karen, to keep her going a little longer, thinking that it would go away at some point. Um, you know, mom thought that she was just being stubborn and refusing to eat. They couldn't admit that it could be a, a mental illness or a, anything like that. It's such a sad story, though, because when you look at the videos, I mean, now you just say, oh, my gosh. When you're with somebody day in and day out, you may not realize how much weight she's lost or how shocking it is to other people. But it became well known to them when she would walk out on stage and the audiences would gasp because Karen thought she looked great. She had lost all this weight and she was, you know, wearing more revealing clothing when she would walk out and audiences were just appalled. People were writing the fan club saying, does Karen have cancer? You know, what's going on? She doesn't look well. And um, I think that that's what really the family started to maybe take a step back and go, okay, we see it now. But by then it was it was too late. And can you talk a little bit about the final stages? Karen and Richard both had kind of um, demons, I guess, that you might say that came along and kind of prevented them from being at their very best in the late 70s. Richard was dealing with an addiction to quaaludes and took some time off uh, at the end of the decade. And Karen went and did a solo album with a producer by the name of Phil Ramone. You know, the, the last few years there... She really couldn't catch a break. That solo album that she did, she was so proud of it. And it was something that, you know, was very personal to her. It was deemed pretty much unreleasable by Richard and the folks at the record label. That was the first of a number of, you know, setbacks in the past last few years of, of Karen's life. She um, ended up getting married in 1980. It was just a disaster because he wasn't who he said he was. He kind of presented himself to be this. Um, big real estate tycoon and construction and real estate in Southern California. It turns out a lot of the things that he was showing to Karen to make her think that he was this wealthy philanthropist kind of guy were all just smoke and mirrors and he was maxed out on everything. He took advantage of her. He caused her health to become once again back where it had been before to the point where she was just ready to collapse. Finally, at the end of 1981, Karen realized things were not getting better. She, for the first time, could say the words anorexia nervosa. She could admit that she had a problem and that she was going to do something about it. So she, she set off on a year of therapy in New York City and moved there during that time. But it, it was just too little too late because, well, for one thing, that the people who were experts in eating disorders at that point had only been experts for a few years. It wasn't something that had been talked about all that much. Karen went in with kind of unrealistic expectations that this guy would fix her in a short amount of time. She ended up checking herself out of this treatment early and going back home and telling everybody 
I'm well, you know, let's get back to recording. Everything's great. I'm cured. And she wasn't. And within just a, a couple of months, she passed away from heart failure. Do you think that she's remembered for her music or for what happened to her as a lesson learned? I think it's important that she's remembered as, as both. And for a few years after her death, I think it was kind of unfortunate that most people remembered her as the singer who died from anorexia versus the singer of, you know, such huge importance with, with an instantly recognizable voice like a, a Sinatra or Ella Fitzgerald or you know, any of these people that you can hear two seconds of their voice and know who it is. But it was something about the 90s, I think, that brought the Carpenters back around. There was kind of this retro cool thing. A lot of our alternative bands started paying tribute to them and people started reassessing the Carpenters and, you know, looking at them a little closer and going, okay, she wasn't just this troubled soul who had a tragic ending to her life, but wow, listen to these vocals, watch her just tear away at these drums. This is amazing. And we're still seeing that nowadays. I think as people are doing these reaction videos on YouTube and, and discovering Carpenter's music and Karen's drumming and Karen's vocals for the first time now, and, you know, doing responses to, to these videos that have been around forever, but people are finally just going, you know, she was really special. So I think she is finally getting her due in, in terms of her importance and who she was. Like she would have been a star in just about any generation. She had a, a classic timeless voice that would have worked and, and probably been a hit in just about any era. So I think both, le- both aspects are important to remember. It's important to learn from her experience and what caused it. But in the end, it was really her voice that, that we'll always remember and think and, and pay tribute to and appreciate and really what made them such a special group. Absolutely. I think it's a cautionary tale, the, the tragic side of things, but then the fact that she left behind this wonderful musical legacy that we can still enjoy, you know, more than 50 years after those first recordings were released, we're still appreciating and, and finding joy in them. What's next for Randy Schmidt? I've been working for the a long time, actually, the last 10 years or so off and on on a, a book about Earl Carroll, Broadway impresario, um, and his star showgirl, Burl Wallace. It's one of those untold chapters in both Broadway and Hollywood history. And I think I'm finally tying up all the loose ends on that project and should have a book in the next um, in the next year or so, crossing my fingers. And that's great. And I should mention that today's Karen's birthday. You told me that. So this yeah, is a great way cool. to pay tribute to her, isn't it? We had to we had to reschedule, but I think it's kind of serendipitous that here we are on Karen's birthday. She would have turned 72 years old today. It's mind-boggling. Amazing to remember. She's been gone now longer than than she was here. And what's Richard up to? Uh, Richard lives in, in Thousand Oaks, and you know, has been basically retired for quite a while now, still tinkers at tweaking Carpenter's songs. And recently, as recent as 20, I think it was 18, did an album with the Royal Philharmonic, redoing a lot of the backgrounds for Carpenter's records, uh, has five children, and <laughs> I think stays busy in that way. just want to say thank you so much for spending this time with me. It was, it was a terrific conversation. Absolute pleasure. I'd love to do it again sometime. All right, we will. Thank you again. Talk to you soon. We tried to talk it over, but the words got in the way. We're lost inside this lonely game we play. 
Thoughts of leaving disappear each time I see your eyes And no matter how 